Come with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Nightmare. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another outstanding edition of Ghost Chronicles International, right here on Tojanet, Pararex, Planet Paranormal, Ghost Channel, and beyond. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper of the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England Zone above Helsinki. With me, all the way from the shores of northern Wales, or southern Wales, or eastern Wales, wherever it is, is the gold standard in ghost hunting, Mr. Stephen Parsons. Bonjour. Comment ça va? Yeah, okay. Hey, guess what I got? Uh, tacos? No, I've got this awesome... Wearable bullet cam, waterproof, under, I can shoot underwater. Yeah, now. yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been using them over here for three or four years now. Tell yeah, me something you don't know. I can use it underwater. And yeah, yeah, yeah. We've got them. We've, rotational, we've been using them for years. Yeah, yeah, fine. I believe you have. I've never seen anything. You always use everything, but you never show anything. So I don't uh, use... It's because we're not equipped. We don't focus on equipment. We focus on getting the job done. But, yeah, we've had body cams, uh, shoulder cams for years. Yeah, this is way beyond anything you have. In this fact, even even uh, all of our hard hats have all got camera mounts. Uh, yeah, mounts that's the latest technology. This thing. I can shoot on the water. Te- oh, yeah, so you're going to do the Titanic now, are you? I am. I'm going after ghosts underwater now. <laughs> I think you should stick to tacos. No, no, no. I got a pair of lead boots, and I'm going to walk into. Hey, the... how come you're such a good cook, and you've never uh, you've never revealed this dark secret before? What are you talking about? Well, every time I'm over there, it's just DDs, isn't it? Well, yeah. Well, you know, it's like well, your life pump, will come back. Pumpkin crumb pie, and that's your lot. Yeah, you know, I might. Anything I can get frozen and give to you and leave in your refrigerator is good. I'll tell you one thing. If we don't have Chinese at Spirit Quest this year, I ain't coming. I would not have a Chinese. Bang! That, why? Sorry. That Chinese was really good last year. Moving on. I'm just saying. Yeah, you know, we've had Chinese for years over here, so we'll get tired of it. Yeah, well, if you'd paid the bill last year, we could have had it this year. we're waiting for our guest yeah we are he's a parapsychologist of some renown and some repute author of telephone calls from the dead and conversations with ghosts unfortunately he isn't going to converse with us yet because I don't know despite the reminders despite me even telling him that we're an hour earlier in the UK because it's only 7 o'clock over here not 8 o'clock nothing is he related to Richard Felix probably Mm. Well, he's a parapsychologist, so... Richard, you know, I always forget what Yeah. I think they, they lead such hectic lives, these academics, that uh, normal, you know, the normal day-to-day stuff is completely beyond them. And unlike, the, unlike the mundane stuff that we do. 
Yeah. Should we talk about telephone calls from the dead, though? And sort of no, war? no, but I, I want to talk about something that's really uh, in the news here in the, in the States, and it's, you know, quite interesting, actually. Um, oh. I don't, I'm sure you've caught it because it's been on Facebook. In fact, I posted it myself about the uh, car accident with the mother who uh, crashed her car, and 14 hours later they discovered her car. And um, the uh, people that came to rescue her actually heard a voice screaming for help. And uh, the only person alive in the car was an 18-month-old baby hanging upside down in the seat. And every single one of these uh, rescuers, uh, we're talking about, you know, firemen and policemen, have heard the voice. And we'll swear to it. In fact, they have on national TV, not on the Enquirer, but on the actual national news. So this is this is an interesting phenomenon. And of course, if Cal Cooper was here, he could comment on it. But since he's not, I'll get the next best thing, and that would be you. Well, the next best thing's comment would be, "Wow, that's really interesting," because you, <laughs> there, there you have uh, reliable witnesses who are. I, was, I find it real interesting. I mean, you know, I, I guess if Cal were here, he could say that one of them heard an animal and then they all it was all mass hysteria. And But you know what? There are other instances where strange things happen and we have to accept that people have strange experiences that we can't explain. And, you know, there's a case in point. You've got reliable people, firemen, policemen, rescue workers. Uh, they've got nothing to gain by making up the story. So Only ridicule, actually. In fact, yeah, only ridicule. So it it's one of those things. We weren't there. We didn't have the experience. Can we make a comment on it? You know, is it right to even criticise it? Because, as you know, we weren't there. We didn't have that experience. They did, and uh, they tell us what happened. And I think we should believe them. Uh, you know, it's it's. I mean, it certainly, as Cal would say. They believe they heard that. So with that, we can't take away from them. I mean, they actually believe that. So no, I believe we should. Why? I believe that we should believe their testimony. Yeah, you know. It's, I mean, it's quite interesting because it wasn't like, uh, did you hear that or something? It, you know, they all. And then uh, later, as time went by, they said, "Did you hear that voice?" And, and they said, "Yeah, that's. I heard that too." And, and you know, they were like, "It was strange," you know. Of course, no. but then strange, st strange stuff does happen, doesn't it? Um, you know, we have to accept that. We have to accept that that's the reason that we do this. That's the reason that we explore these interesting human experiences because honest, reliable people who, who let's as you as you rightly pointed out, have got nothing to gain except ridicule and a great deal to lose have these experiences. Um, now, obviously, there are times when people can be mistaken and misled. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But but we can't we can't say that's always the case. It just wouldn't be fair to. So uh, ah, here we go. I've been waiting on Skype for twenty minutes. So I don't know why. Why has he been waiting on Skype for twenty minutes? I have no idea. Oh, uh, let me. Uh, have we got the right Skype address for him? We don't have a Skype address. I actually sent you a message, but you didn't respond to it. Oh, hang on. There you he, go. Uh, they cleaned their service, so they have to, uh, they had to add. Ah, uh, so they, they, well, they just threw him out then, I guess. So uh, I've tried to add him anyway, see what happens. Okay. Interesting. Have I uh, added him? You did? Is he here? I don't know. 
the hell? Cal, if you're there. Yay! You... Hang on, I can see a picture. There we go. Oh, the... oh. oh turn, your video... turn your video off. Sorry, hang on. That's horrible. Or at least get not. some clothes on. There we go. Sorry about that. It is nippy. Yeah, both of them. <laughs> and without further ado, uh, the boy wonder of parapsychology himself. No, the, rat, the rock parapsychologist. Well, the rat pack parapsychologist. <laughs> who's, who's broadcasting in the buff. Yeah. Which is a That's natural certainly. state, which is a natural state for Cal. Telephone, uh, author of Telephone Calls from the Dead, Conversations with Ghosts. Mm-hmm. The venerable Dr. Cal Cooper. <laughs> Thank you very much. How are you both doing? Who's interviewing you? I, I don't know. I was just asking you how you're doing. What was the, the first paranormal issue? What was going on there? I heard you saying that I hadn't turned up. Nothing, 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 nothing. Well, uh, we were just hey, talking yeah. about... Cal, we, were, we, had, we had a, uh, a story here in the U.S. that's, that's taken over the news. And it just happened. And, and, you know, I wanted your comments on it, too. And, and it kind of goes in with your telephone calls from the dead and, and conversation with ghosts. It's about a, uh, a woman who crashes her cars. And 14 hours later, they discovered the car turned upside down in the water. And mm-hmm. rescuers go to try to help her. And they all hear her screaming, uh, help me, help us. And when they get in there, the only person in the car alive is the baby. And she's been dead for, I mean, the, the woman in the car has been dead for uh, a long time. And the only uh, half-conscious person is, is the baby hung upside down in the car mm-hmm. seat. So, I mean, that fits right in with your, your telephone calls to the dead, doesn't it? Yeah, when I was searching for accounts, Fate Magazine was awesome for looking for kind of original submissions of people having strange experiences, and that's where Rogan Bayless found a lot of their first How cases. long before he mentioned Exactly. Them. But to move straight on from Rogan Bayless, there was a, a, an account of someone calling from a grave. Someone had gone to a gravesite and they're walking through, and they were adamant they were hearing the voice of someone that they knew, a friend who was alive, calling to them from one of the graves. And they went over, found no one there playing tricks or a prank. And it related to their friend actually being in some trouble at the time um, from whatever voice was being called out. But there were also some other instances that I'd seen in Fate magazine, just thinking back, where Mm -hmm. they heard a voice calling to them. There was no one there, but where the voice called them to in going over to that particular location where they thought the voice was coming from, it led them to discover something. So it kind of relates really well to this modern-day case where it's actually saved the child. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's, that's interesting. It, and, you know, and on the mon- 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 yeah, Monday morning show, we did a, a piece on near-death experiences. And it, it, the clinical uh, thought is that uh, when, when the heart stops, the brain uh, ceases to function after a, a short period of time. And yet there are many, many reports of uh, people being able to uh, remember things that happened after their heart had stopped uh, for long periods of time. It, it, you think it's a, a possible? It goes beyond even that. That 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 same consciousness was able to somehow uh, mentally or or, or um, audibly being able to call out from beyond. Well, that's a quite a big question. Um... One of the theories that was put forward for how voices might suddenly appear in the air, which is mentioned in um, the forthcoming book that Steve and I have been putting together for quite some time, 
was if people hear voices suddenly appear out of thin air, there was this paraphysical theory that maybe psychokinetically we're creating them and it's like a projection of the mind. And this is what some of the early members of the Society for Psychical Research put forward as an explanation for the majority of apparitions. They believed that they weren't necessarily an objective thing in our environment, but maybe a telepathic projection but it relates to information that we might need to know. So it could be historical information about the building or some sort of information from that person visualised as the apparition. So if we're projecting just the sound of the voice, um, we've still got something paranormal going on. It doesn't necessarily support survival of consciousness or personality um, afterwards. We went into this big debate, though, recently when I was doing some classes on thanatology, and we were looking at the psychology of death and different CAT scans at the point of someone having a healthy brain or someone in a vegetative state in a coma, then situations that are defined as brain death, and then after that, full-on physical death, and showing kind of how much activity was going on in the brain. And during the time of brain death, it's just fascinating to see a CAT scan because when you have a perfectly healthy brain or a brain in a vegetative state, you can see, still see electrical activity going on, so the unconscious mind is still working away inside there. But when you get to brain death or even physical death, when you look at the CAT scan, it's as though the skull itself is hollow. We know that the physical structure of the brain is still there, but those uh, electrons that fire back and forth, they're not firing anymore. They've disappeared, they've left the body, which is you know, one of the reasons why people still strongly believe that that must be going somewhere. And maybe that is responsible for these instances where we have experiences that suggest survival of death. It's acting outside of the body. And it's supported by out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences and many other situations. So, Steve, what do you th- what's your thoughts on that? Well, speaking as somebody who's medically qualified, um, we, have, we do have instances, uh, very well documented, where people have been bodily uh, declared dead and have remained dead for uh, it, periods of up to and in, uh, in excess of an hour um, mm-hmm. and, and brought back. Uh, so, yeah. I don't. Were you ever? I, uh, was I ever brain dead? No. No, no. Uh, I was about to say, were you ever involved in situations where people have been resuscitated after oh, being abso- dead? Oh, absolutely. Even a... um, I've I've been in in, in direct, you know, uh, involved in, in in instances where people have been dead for up to forty minutes, um, yeah. clinically clinically dead for up to forty minutes, um, and they have recovered without without any untoward effects. Uh, unfortunately, none of them reported an out-of-body experience, um, which, you know, would have been an interesting thing to have spoken to them about. I have actually spoken to several people who do claim to have had out-of-body experiences as first-hand accounts, but I don't... The, the actual moment of death is a very difficult thing for clinicians to understand. Uh, there are lots of different criteria for defining the moment of death and pronouncing life extinct. Um, there are models that, that, that rely on, on, the, on the heart, but we know that we can resuscitate people, um, you know, for, even after prolonged instances of heart stoppage and, uh, you know, other clinical signs that we would normally associate with death. And, in fact, this problem has existed for man, <laughs> well, as long as we've been living and dying. You know, there are many, many accounts of premature burials, of people seemingly being dead, have been prepared for burial mm-hmm. and have then been heard to knock on the on the the lid of the coffin or or banging on the on the the uh the mortuary uh door you know, that was the... 
that was most pom- uh, prominent in Sweden, where they've been burying a lot of people that were um, still alive. So that's where the whole um, thing developed of having the graveyard shift and someone that was having to watch the graveyard overnight in case one of the yeah. bells on the graves rang because there was a bar at the bottom of the um, coffin so they could kick the bell, the bar, exactly. sorry, if they were going... Yeah, yeah, there were, um, there were lots of strange mechanisms in the past to prevent premature burial. There were, there were, there was, you know, there was electrical devices. There were telephone call. Uh, there were telephones actually fitted in some, so you could actually have a <laughs> telephone call from the deceased. Um, there, there were other devices. There were, there were light indicators. Um, there are, there are uh, suggestions that this is actually the one of the the root uh, roots of the vampire myth. Or the vampire mm-hmm. legend that you know when people have been excavated, they found scratch marks inside the coffin, um, and then people have assumed that they're they're undead because it could be premature burial. No, there was uh, a Nobel Prize given for the invention of the stethoscope because they actually asked out to people if they could come up with a sort of definitive way of um, finding out whether someone is fully clinically dead or not. And they tried numerous methods. People came forward desperate to get this Nobel Prize. And the one that won was the stethoscope, just um, something that could amplify listening to the heart. But even that, now looking back in kind of modern medical settings, that isn't even enough sometimes to actually... No, it's not. No. It absolutely isn't. I mean, I've been in the situation where using, you know, modern um, ECG... ECGs. We, I've seen flatline. Well, you yeah. don't get it. It's a myth. The flatline is actually a myth. <laughs> it is. Flatline. Um, but I've seen uh, an electrically dead heart for two or three minutes suddenly decide to come back all, all by itself with no intervention. Um, you know, it, it, the human body is an amazing machine that we don't yet fully understand, and the human mind and the brain is even more complex. Um, you know, there are theories that the mind or the brain is actually a central processing unit and that all our memories and all of our experiences are stored off-board uh, in some Akashic cloud, I, th- I think I think the ter- one of the terms used is, um, because we don't actually know where the seat of consciousness is. Mm-hmm. No, the uh, Academy for Spiritual... Uh, I think it's Spiritual and Consciousness that is now they've adopted the name. It used to be the Academy for Religion and Psychical Research, but they did an essay prize numerous times to different scholars asking them if they could produce a 4,000-word essay on psychical researchers, past history and all research, bring it together and structure an essay together on the title of Does Consciousness Hold a Fixed Locality? And, of course, the vast majority of psychical phenomena suggest that it doesn't have a complete attachment to the brain. It seems to be generated by the brain, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always fixed to the brain and always fixed to the body. Psychic phenomena suggest this reaching out of the mind to gather information and bring it in. If we have an out-of-body experience or astral projection, it's projecting out of the body and travelling somewhere. Exactly, and sticking to the medical theme, of course, there are, there are uh, a number of reports where people have had body part transplants taken place and claim to have um, picked up on the memories of the former owner of the particular body part, and a number of hand-arm amputees in, um, have uh, had their hand-arm amput- uh, transplant reversed. Uh, for that mm. reason, that they that they claimed, <laughs> well, no, that they claimed that the hand was acting. In fact, it's, I know it's been the subject of a Hollywood movie or two, but <laughs> the reality is uh, there are several hand arm transplantees who have had the operation reversed 
Uh, I, I, can act, I can actually testify that because, uh, as you know, I cut off my fingers and uh, my middle finger, they actually put a cadaver bone in it. So often I will uh, give someone the finger. It's not me, really. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, may, maybe, you know, I mean, there are talks of genetic memory. Uh, we, we, mm. carry the, we carry the genes um, of our ancestors. And maybe, maybe that there is some, some semblance of memory locked into the core of our genetics. And that would be one mechanism, possibly, where you could pick up on the memories of someone else. We just—the simple answer is, of course, we just don't know. We're speculating. Yeah, I, I think one of my most favourite cases is in looking at specifically heart transplants. And there was a documentary a while ago that looked at five or six specific case studies. And I don't know if it was a Latin term for the heart or something else, but it translated through that in some places the heart had been termed the little brain, and believing that it contained traces of your memory and personality. And in this documentary, they followed the lives of people who had had heart transplants and what kind of transitions had taken place in their life. And they'd reported dietary change, handwriting change, suddenly recalling memories for family that they didn't actually have. And when they were noting all this down and they were actually gathering together all these different changes within one individual and then tracing back who was the heart actually from, it seemed to be spot on. The handwriting could be compared, the diet was that. Some of the brilliant ones were people that were in their 60s and 70s had a heart transplant. And were usually these people were typically quite lazy. And when they had a heart transplant, they started actually adopting things such as extreme sports and taking those on. And lo and behold, in this one case, the guy got the heart of... Uh, a guy that was in involved in extreme uh, sports and was a stunt double in films as well. And it seems he was taking on this guy's um, adrenaline junkie rush as well. So that, was, that one always fascinated me looking back at that. That's an interesting thought. So would it be possible then if our DNA is actually the seat of our consciousness? Well, that it's goes back to what... But what's yeah. scary is that we're now starting to transplant things like pig, pig valves into people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then we can like, well, sniff yeah. out truffles. Yeah, that might be, uh, that might be a, a new role for uh, replacing dogs and pigs. <laughs> oh, bonus. Can't believe you went there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. So... You guys uh, have a new book that's coming up, I understand, and you want to tell us a little bit about it and, and what it's encompassed in this, this uh, book with you? Steve, you should check... Uh, no, actually, I did this a week ago, so it's your turn. That's why no, you're it's, here. It's your no, love I, child. It's your uh, love child. You, do. you no. start. Ron and I had, had a conversation about this very book the week before last, which is why I asked <laughs> you to come on, which is why I asked you to come on to give me a rest. Okay. Well, what happened was, as you know, Steve has been researching infrasound for quite some time and decided that he wanted to put a book together. So he sent me some emails to which I ignored and then wrote me a letter to which I ignored. And then he sent me several calls and I ignored those as well. And he was begging and begging and begging for me to get involved. And then finally I said, okay, Steve, I'll, I'll get involved. That's, that's how it happened roughly, isn't it, Steve? Mm -hmm. And then... Uh, yeah, more yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and the um... the, <laughs> the the two names and the word involved are are entirely correct. There. <laughs> um, and so we both, in a number of ways, looked at various aspects of sound and the paranormal. And I, I'd not really realised or focused on it that much until Steve kind of highlighted the fact that I had, and he'd also been looking into a number of things, not just infrasound 
but also with Steve's absolute love for ghosts, there are loads of instances of noisy ghosts, and then there's also spirits of the seance room causing raps and bangs and taps and so forth. And um, I'd also looked into EVP quite extensively in its history as well through the telephone call from the dead stuff. And uh, we also have some friends and colleagues as well that have been looking at unique aspects of sound and the paranormal. So it was Steve's idea to put together um, a useful toolbook anthology of sound and the paranormal to act as a guide for anyone that is interested in researching this particular area of the paranormal. So they could pick up the book, read the overview of what sound is in terms of physics and psychology, the research that has been carried out in various areas of the paranormal in relation to sound, and then use it as a basis for taking their own research further with the fact that they have virtually the majority of things we can think of to hand in terms of what research has been carried out. Steve has provided brilliant appendices where there's also practical guides for actually going out and um, doing a, a basic measurement of infrasound and some other things as well. So this is a handy sort of guidebook that you can sort of keep with you, something to stick in an, an investigation kit. And in the second half of the book, we got our friends and colleagues to contribute a chapter each on um, their research interests. So there's shamanism and music and how this has promoted altered states of consciousness and paranormal experiences, poltergeist raps and analysing those, and Winsper's done... Um, a section that's kind of related to her PhD as well on the psychology of EVP. We also have spontaneous music and music appearing at the point of death. So there's a number of things. It's a really long and extensive book with such a variety of different topics on sound and the paranormal. That's that's the thing I found interesting about it, Cal and Steve is is that you know I, I you know I heard a, he was doing a book on infrasound and it's like. Oh, that sounds exciting. Uh, but then I, I, I realized there were a lot more aspects of uh, the book than just uh, infrasound. And so uh, I find it much more appealing. So I'm, I'm really excited to get my hands on a copy of this uh, uh, Bible of yours. It's a chunky one. It's just going up now. Um, so we heard today, I think, in the next yeah. End of May, I think. End of May will be out, but in the next 10 days or so, it'll certainly be up on Amazon for pre-order, which is pretty cool. So mm-hmm. then people can start to um, get a teaser for what it's like. There's also up on whitecrowbooks.co.uk, there's a, a little example section of the first introduction that Steve wrote as well to get people into the idea of what the book's about and what, what it involves. That's, that's paracoustics. In regard to the book itself, it, are the are the chapters related in any? Other, was there any common thread that goes through it other than just uh, each their own separate unit, or, or is there a common thread that goes through it? Sound and noise, really, all the way through. Well, yeah, um, I mean, it's that's the, it's anything and everything that we <laughs> that we can. Well, more or less anything and everything that we can relate to. Uh, paranormal aspects of sound because hearing is one of our key senses uh it's one of the first senses that develops uh in 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 our in the womb and it's one of the last senses that that leaves us um as i said last time when when dealing with an unconscious patient or one in a, a persistent vegetative state uh nurses and doctors are always taught to talk to the person and um, mm. it's been shown that they can respond to those stimuli a- an easy indication of of how we respond to sound of course is even when you're deeply asleep your alarm clock normally rouses you um because hearing virtually never turns itself off it's one of our one of our key uh key senses 
again, you could be... I told the students this the other day, I've forgotten why it came up. I, I think we were just talking about the unconscious mind in relation to dreams, but even when you're sat in, say, a classroom and you're listening to the lecturer, you are still unconsciously taking in all the other sounds of the room as well. A, a good example is, like, if you hear someone unconsciously, it, it's kind of half there, but you hear someone yawning in the room and it becomes infectious as a sort of survival aid that we start to yawn as well because we believe that there's this limited supply of oxygen in the room so we take this big gasp of air um, but another example related to what Steve just gave is going back to the psychophones and that was the first development of listening to inspirational speech while you slept so we know that you're not conscious anymore you're asleep but there's this belief that the unconscious mind is still processing sound. The ears still work, it's still hearing, and it's still sending that information through into the brain. So we can listen to speech about how to improve our financial issues and relationships and so much more, and then that will resolve oh, itself during the time of sleep. Which, of, sounds, which of course, to, has been debunked. You have to process it. has. <laughs> so uh, if uh, you'll hold on, we'll be right back. You'll listen to Ghost Chronicles International right here on Tojanet Pararex. Planet Paranormal, the ghost box, and whatever other electronic device you wish to be right back to fun. Monday mornings just got scarier. Tune in every Monday at 11 a.m. for another episode of Ghost Chronicles Morning Edition with New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolick, and his inquisitive travel companion, Lou Blassie, the professor. Hey, that's me. Each week we'll delve into the realm of the supernatural where all that is is not what it appears to be. With remarkable guests, spirited conversation, and the occasional voice of the deceased, we'll bring you a whole new meaning to the term dead air. Ghost Chronicles, Mondays at 11 on Eagle Radio 1110. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. Feel the need to do some soul searching or make some changes in your life to create a more positive future? then Circles of Wisdom is just the place for you. Circles of Wisdom is a metaphysical bookstore and more, located on Route 28 in downtown Andover, Massachusetts. We carry a large selection of books and music, crystals and gemstones, jewelry and gifts, sage, aromatherapy, and so much more, all in a relaxing and welcoming atmosphere. We offer classes on a variety of topics like yoga, Reiki, psychic development, alternative healing, and personal transformation. For guidance on this journey we call life, get a reading from one of our many readers at Circles of Wisdom, 90 Main Street in downtown Andover, right next to Bertucci's. Call us at 978-474-8010 or check us out on the web at www.circlesofwisdom.com. Lots to see and do in a feel-good place, an oasis in this hectic world. And spooky, they all talk ugly gooky, the Parax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parax family. They're strange, deranged, unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew, it's time to rendezvous as we give awards to the Parax family. Greetings and felicitations. I am Ron Kolek, New England's own Van Helsing. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the Blonde Bombshell. And we're here at the elegant Benford Hall, the Downton Abbey of Menace. And we would like to extend a formal invitation to you. To tune in every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. On Toginet, Parax, Ghost Channel, and Planet Paranormal. 
You can even listen live on your smartphone with your TuneIn app or catch the podcast on iTunes. And now, time for tea. And as the clatter of the teacups in Downton Abbey are put away for yet another week, we're back to part two of Ghost Chronicles International. Oh, why, why is this obsession with tea, time for tea? Every time I go over to America, everybody's walking around with paper cups full of coffee. Did you ask Ron how you actually make tea? He had a bizarre way of uh, making tea the first time I asked him. I wouldn't even begin to question Ron. I don't find that bizarre at all. Go through it again, Ron. How do you make a cup of tea? You boil a waddle too. You, of course, you hear it whistle, and then <laughs> pour it into a cup with a tea bag, and then you let it seep there for a while, and then you try that on Downton Abbey, and you would be executed. And of by course, the by, the, by the time you're ready for it and it's strong enough, you have to um, put it in the microwave and heat it up again. No! No, 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 you do not yep. put cups of tea in the microwave. Yep, they've already been brewed, so you're not really, all you're doing is uh, exciting the <sighs> molecules for their ultimate death. No, no. Do you know, when I was over in California, that's how um, I was made a cup of tea without even the boiling process. It was just tea bag and uh, water in the cup, and then it went in the microwave, and I, I was more... Hey, more, more bizarre than that, I've actually, uh, <laughs> using hot tap water. Yeah. Yeah, that's been done. That's been done. Really? No, the prop, the the correct way uh, to make British tea, English breakfast tea. Uh, I'm glad you is, that British tea. Is, is um, first of all, you you have to use boil, freshly boiled spring water. Oh, you nice. then you then put one heaped tablespoon of tea into <laughs> the into the pre-warmed pot. So you warm the pot with some water. You then tip the water yep. away. You put the tea in. You yep. then fill fill the teapot to the two thirds level. You then wait for enough time to boil an egg, which is about two or three two, two, yeah, two to three minutes, depending on how you like your egg. Meanwhile, you add a dash of milk to each of the cups after pre-warming the cups in the same way that you warm the pot, and then you add the tea poured through a, stra- a silver strainer. Sounds good to me. And then you microwave it. No! You know, I've seen people regularly boil eggs by keeping them in the kettle. That's a good way to do it. Actually, I know how to boil an egg with a microwave. Now, that's a really neat trick. I bet not many people could do that. Without blowing up the egg? Without blowing the egg up. <laughs> Are you going to give it away, or is that a mystery to be saved no, it's for a, later? it's a mystery to be saved for later. Anyway, before the break, we were talking about... Uh, the intro. We were talking about, well, you started with tacos. We were talking about... We <laughs> what? Talking... When did I mention tacos? Excuse me. <laughs> and Chinese food. Oh, you made yeah, me yeah. hungry now. Anyway, we were talking about sound, which is a one of our key, if not one, the most important sense that we have. Uh, well, second maybe to touch, but... Uh, and how it relates to the paranormal experiences. We, we've, uh, Cal and I have cobbled together a bit of a book... Um, but we've, we've obviously written some of it, um, we've edited some others, but we've got some very interesting chapters included in the book, one of which I think I'm particularly excited about, um, looks at, uh, the spectral analysis and, uh, a detailed acoustic examination 
of the raps that occur in seances and in relation to poltergeists, most notably uh, in the research, the Enfield poltergeist was studied. Um, and in, indeed, the research is still very much ongoing. There is still a team um, with members uh, belonging to the Society for Psychical Research that includes uh, acoustic technicians and uh, led by Dr. Barry Colvin, who are studying the differences between the recreated sounds that they're making uh, versus recordings of sounds ostensibly coming from um, uh, the spirit world. And that the Barry does, uh, Barry's research uh, does strongly indicate that there are significant differences. But does that suggest that they're paranormal or just that they're significantly different from the original sounds that were created? I think neither this Barry or I. I think neither. No, there's another telephone call from the dead. I think <laughs> neither, Bar, neither Barry or, or I are. Um, are, are prepared. I, I don't think you can go. Pre- you, I don't. Think, how can you say something is paranormal, uh, or, or or link it to the spirit realm? Because okay, they have an uh, anomalous source that well, can't be. It, it, it can't can't be. Uh, you know, I can't. I can't fly to the moon. It doesn't mean that I couldn't. You know, I could think of our, several ways to send you there. <laughs> yeah, but our <laughs> knowledge and understanding of, of, of our environment uh, and the physics and the operating parameters of our world, our, our universe, extends on a daily basis, doesn't it? What, what today we don't understand and what we find difficult to measure and to comprehend in a year's time will be completely different. So, so to say something is paranormal or anomalous is, is I think, potentially well, misleading. I think it's more accurate to say that it's just not understood yet. Currently, yeah. Currently. No, currently, yeah, I'd agree. But, there is, but what, what is, you know, it doesn't detract from the fact that the careful research has been done and careful sound measurements uh, have been made of recordings of... Uh, poltergeist raps of the knocks and raps that occur within seance rooms um, that are said to emanate from from spirit communications, and that when when they the uh, they've been replicated or attempted to be replicated, they mm-hmm. they failed because they haven't been able to replicate them. They haven't been able to make the same sound signature, and the equipment that they're using is very similar to the equipment that I used for measuring uh, inaudible sounds, sounds that we can't hear. And you can, be, you can be very, very accurate and you can be very certain about the measurements that are being made. Sound, sound is also, the human voice is very like a fingerprint. Um, we have, we have obviously have uh, entertainers who can mimic um, you know, famous politicians or, or famous mm. celebrities and would fool the vast majority of the population. And indeed, you know, notably in these, in these scam telephone calls from the living, uh, they have fooled politicians and they fooled other celebrities into revealing in, in, information. However, um, if you then put the, the, the mimic voice against the real voice on, a, on an analyzer, you would very quickly tell the two of them apart. Um, you know, it, it, what might sound like sound similar to our human ear sounds very, you know, is it, very different to a machine, and that's that's also very much the case, of course, when it comes to the sounds that we hear 
when we're conducting an investigation. Uh, you know, people say, I heard the sound of, of an animal. I heard the sound of a voice shouting. I heard, I, you know, I, I heard chains rattle. I heard doors move, windows. But in actual fact, if you look at the uh, where recording exists, if you do get to analyse it um, in this detailed way, you'll often find that what the person is listening to or what the person heard and thinks that they they interpreted that is actually radically different. One case in point that we have is what sounds very much like um, heavy footsteps rushing down a flight of wooden stairs. In reality, it was nothing more than a, uh, a ballpoint pen. Mm. But the way it had been recorded, because the, the sound was being picked up through the case of the recorder in addition to through the microphone, led people to believe um, that what, what they were actually hearing was the sound of footsteps. So what we actually hear um, is decided by our brain, not our ears. Sometimes it's really tricky, though, to actually reach a, some sort of conclusion when you think you've got a good me- uh, sort of method in place. And that what you've just said there took me back to part of the investigation of Dr. Constantine Radova's alleged telephone calls from beyond the grave. And they took um, those recordings because he'd called people several times in France, Germany and the USA, and um, because they were repeated, they had the opportunity to record this this voice. And as we know, when Breakthrough was published, they also produced it with an LP so people could actually hear the EVP examples that he got. And within that were examples of his voice as well, but when he was actually living. So it was Paolo Prezzi that decided to take the two recordings of this guy, one when he's alive and the other one when he's dead, to compare the audio acoustical properties of the voice pattern. And it appeared within that that the voice, when they compared them, did not actually match. Though to hear it, as uh, Steve just described there with impersonators, you know, it sounds spot on. And we recognise it just to hear and we understand who the person is. You know, when you see someone impersonating someone else, they don't have to dress up and look exactly like the person. It's just the voice that you need sometimes for recognition. And that's what seemed to be going on in this case but just because the two voices didn't match led them into a sort of catch-22 situation with the analysis. For one, you could say, well, because this voice of the deceased caller doesn't match that same person when they're living, um, we could say that it is a prank and someone's impersonated their voice. However, with the original recording, that person was alive and the acoustics were being produced from a physical, biological voice box and then recorded. And in the second instance, they're allegedly being produced without any form of physical body and some sort of disembodied consciousness replicating the voice pattern through possibly manipulating the electrons within the telephone line and creating a replication of what that person on the other end of the phone would recognise as being Constantine Radova. So you're left in a situation where you think, well, it could be that one, and our conventional explanation could be a hoax, or it could possibly be the other one. We're left in a situation where we can't, at the moment, progress any further. Uh, yeah, that's. I mean, that's tumbleweed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I, I just. out making tacos again. <laughs> Perfecting no, tea. No, 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 no. I mean, we we hear a lot about you know uh, near, especially near death experiences. We hear a lot about visual things where people see things, but we really don't hear too many cases about them hearing things. Yeah, have you found a lot of them in in your research? They certainly so, exist. What's that? Go back, go back to that they, first point, and you cut off a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, when we, 
when exploring, for instance, near-death experiences or, mm -hmm. or even uh, people who come back from dead, uh, there's always uh, reports of what they've seen, uh, in, but there, you don't hear that much about what they heard. Is, is there a reason for that, or, or, is, or are there plenty of reports that just not, uh, you know, people just don't pick up on them? Um, that my response was in, there were actually quite a lot of uh, reports of near-death experiences that include a sound element to them. Um, yes. Because if you read the testimony of the person, um, they may have spoken to Jesus, they may have spoken to some uh, family member, or at the towards the end of the experience, they may have registered. And it's interesting that we talk about this alarm clock effect, that the reason that the near-death experience was broken was that they became aware of a, a living loved one calling them or, or mm. calling them back and that their name was being shouted, which, which in a lot of cases they resented. They, they resented this audible intrusion into the near-death experience because mm -hmm. they were having such a good time. They wanted to go forward, um, presumably into, into, into full death, um, but they were being constantly called back, irritated by this, this alarm clock voice that brought them back to, back to the land of the living, back to the, you know, the, to the state that, that we're all in, hopefully. But those aren't really testimony of of uh, experiences that are noises that happen. Well, yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they are. They're describing voices and sounds. They're having conversations um, with with, as I said, uh, some some entity. Uh, in some cases, it, yeah, it's but Jesus. In, in a lot or... of the cases, they're seeing uh, they're seeing uh, actions in this reality versus whatever reality you're talking about where Jesus is or whatever now, else. All, they also describe conversations that take place around around the body when they yeah. drift off into the ceiling. They hear, and in fact, there, there, are, there are many, many accounts, in fact, probably more so, where they're describing both um, the, the visual things but also the conversations that the staff, the nursing staff, the medical staff are having around the, 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 the body. That's what's um, added so much credit to some cases because exactly, they've listened because in on the conversation and then yeah. when they've been revived, they've reported various medical procedures that the person was not aware of not having been medically trained. Mm -hmm. Or even in, in, in several instances, conversations that had absolutely nothing to do with uh, what was going on and therefore would be completely unexpected. In one instance, uh, staff were talking about uh, the purchase of a car and a very specific model and a very specific colour of car, um, which had nothing to do with the fact that they were you know, trying to resuscitate this, this person. Mm -hmm. um, there was another instance where... Um, I, it was a member of the ambulance crew that had brought the person in who was still t uh, standing at the back of the room who, whose phone went off and was having a telephone call, uh, receiving a telephone call whilst the medical staff were dealing with, the, with the, the patient. And the patient recalled the telephone call and the nature of the telephone call, who the, who the ambulance uh, crew member was talking to. So sound is very much a feature um, of a lot of... Uh, uh, probably the majority of near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. Mm -hmm. I just want to, if, if I may, I want to go back to the Barry Colvin chapter again. And, and as Steve said, it's a really exciting sort of contributed chapter of the book. And it, a lot of um, cynics, when they, there has been some reviews of Barry's chapter, because in some places it has been quite controversial. 
and some people trying to actually discredit the research with the fact that all you've got is just a recording and there's no kind of element of, well, what was actually going on at the time? We've got no video footage as well. If you go back to some of these cases, in that barriers analysed some of the raps of the Enfield case, go all the way back to the Fox sisters as well. I think people forget that, you know, in both elements you have young girls involved and a lot of the scepticism that's been placed on it is that a lot of the time it was pranks and them knocking out of sight of the investigators there or the witnesses present. But with the first um, kind of knockings that were being produced to the Fox sisters, I think a lot of people forget that the girls were actually taken away from where they were living and it was just the father and the neighbour that decided to spend a night and actually listen out and see if these raps continued. And they did without the girls being present as well. And they were hearing these knocks, they were responsive, they could spell out letters and they'd get a communication. And the same happened with Enfield as well. The girls were actually sent away on holiday while Morris Gross and Guy Playfair were left in the house for a while as well. And still, poltergeist activity continued, especially the raps as well, showing that the girls were not solely responsible for it. And these are some of the raps which were recorded and later Barry was analysing as well. Just to kind of tarnish any of these scepticism that people have put to some of these cases, I think those are elements that are seriously forgotten and quite interesting. Well, that's one of the problems with, with um, sceptical research because it's one of, the, one of the joys of being a sceptic, of course, is you can always explain something away. Um, and if you can't, then you can resort to claims of hoaxing or, or, or even downright fraud. Um, I think where where most realistic investigators have to stop is at the point where the explanation that they're offering is starting to sound incredibly implausible mm. and just have to accept the fact that, you know, weird stuff happens. Mm. But well, uh, if you look at any general presentation of the Fox sisters and any representative that's the sceptic of the case will say clearly they were doing it, they admitted that later on down the line when they needed the money that it was all a hoax. But how can it be a hoax in situations where they weren't present? Well, they, they hang this... They, 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 they hold great store on the fact that um, uh, Margaret Fox, I think it was, um, admitted for money that, that it was a trick. But they, they, they seem to overlook the fact that shortly afterwards she retracted that. Now, which, you know... You can't give credence to one, one version of a testimony just because it suits you. Now, a lot of spiritualists, of course, will, will give credence to the retraction. Um, mm. you know, but there was an admission, uh, that's a fact, but there was also equally a retraction. Mm. And there was, there, was a, there was a very good reason why there could be an admission. Uh, equally, there was a good reason why there was a retraction. Um, yeah. and, but the, in the case of, of Enfield... Um, what you have there is 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 really on the on the part of some investigators, some of the sceptical uh, people who went along, downright stupidity, um, and a crass ignorance of or a blind a, a willful blindness to the to the actual uh, situation that was taking place. Uh, for instance, one of the one of the girls, I think it was Janet, um, deliberately threw an, um, a, a kitchen utensil and was caught actually doing it. Yeah. Uh, to which the investigators came away and said, therefore, everything that's taken place in that in that in that house over the preceding six six months had been created by the children, but the, <laughs> including including all of the things that were witnessed while the children were present, including all of the things that were witnessed in an in an adjacent house by policeman by, by a policewoman, including the the wrenching from a wall of a forty pound yeah. dead weight cast iron fireplace, 
all of that was created by the children on the basis that one of the children, like all children will do, inevitably they will get bored and they'll go, do you know what, I'm going to throw this bloody spoon. Yeah, especially got, with the fact that they And got caught doing it. The investigators were practically living with them for all that time, so they're going to yeah. catch on to certain things because they get bored with the fact that the investigators are around so long. So it's a bit of fun. But in between that, there were events that were happening, uh, you know, the wrapping being one, um, but other events that just could not possibly have taken place. Steve mentioned the fireplace being wrenched from the wall that had some weight to it, and Morris Gross admitted that even he struggled to lift it up alone. Uh, there was the other instance of the kitchen table, which wasn't just a sort of standard light table. It's probably like your kitchen table, Steve. It's quite a big, wooden, heavy thing, and for a young 11-year-old girl to flip it within you know, a split second or so of the adults in sight, it's quite a feat to accomplish if she did indeed do it. And uh, that... Yeah, go for it. I, didn't, I wasn't going to say anything, but oh. <laughs> <laughs> this idea of uh, getting bored, though, um, you know, while you were saying that, my mind was sort of cast back to there are lots of accusations made about Most Haunted, aren't there? And I was thinking mm-hmm. maybe maybe because filming the programme was so boring that they, you know, <laughs> they, just, they just resorted to the, te- the temptation to throw a spoon. And now, which episode did that take place in? Um, no, interesting. Just, just became too much. When you looked at the book, did you look at the Tetworth uh, drummer at all? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, Twice the, over. <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, yes, Tedworth is in it, um, as is the Wesley case. Um, my old friend, Athenodorus. I think Rogo and Bayliss get the odd mention. Yeah, here and there. <laughs> um, what we've tried to do is to, is to examine um, throughout the book uh, the the idea of sound so uh, and its links to the paranormal being not a recent creation i mean it, it's a historical thing we've talked before and mentioned athenodorus uh, written about uh, first century athens by pliny the younger uh, there you have chain rattling uh, a chain rattling ghost that tried to rattle its you know rattling its chain frantically so that Athenodorus would take some notice of it until he shushed it um so we have sound you know from the very earliest cases uh, right the way through the the uh, medieval period, through the the heyday of spiritualism, right up to the present day, and of course the study of what's become very very popular within ghost hunting is electronic voice production, electronic voice phenomena, um, and all these related. You know, it's it it wasn't so very many years ago that that. that um, the most essential part of a, of a ghost hunting kit was a thermometer. Then it became mm. an EMF meter. Now you can't venture into a haunted building without your EVP sound recorder. Uh, sound has become, you know, one of the key tools for, for investigators. But sound has to... always been recognised, hasn't it? Yeah, this goes back to Steve's sort of purpose of the book with the fact that there's so many investigation teams now concentrating so much on EVP. I doubt if you um, kind of got a hundred of these groups together and asked them, you know, what was the basis of the, this research? Why was it done and what were their findings? They won't know or they won't have read into it. And so within the book, it's kind of broken that down and show you how parapsychology, psychical research and the phenomena of EVP has actually progressed over time. Um, and there, there were big kind of landmarks with um, Raymond Bayliss submitting a correspondence to the Journal of the American Society for Psychical Research when he was testing this out with the astral projector Attila von Zelay. And then Frederick Jurgensen came on the scene and then Dr. Constantine Raudover. That created a massive boom as well and an air of scepticism. And then David Ellis 
you know, do, do people regularly recognize these names? Frederick yeah. Jurgensen crops up a lot in popular books. But this is all important history, and they actually learned, especially at the David Ellis stage, there were some big findings coming from this. But it was also causing a lot of splits and argument where people that were very much in favor of survival were keen to insist that these EVPs were indeed voices of the dead, whereas those that were actually looking at, well, what can psychology and physics tell us about this? We were starting to notice more and more how much the pareidolia effect played within EVP and that if you're listening to random sounds and sometimes there's a suggestion that you're going to hear something that our brain is automatically tuned anyway to pick out recognition within random sounds. So to our, our eyes, we, we recognise things within an environment that we can relate to being human. I recognise that sound, though. And I recognise the doorbell sound. Yeah. Right. Before you go, like I have one, one quick question to ask you. I, I know there are... Um, I go back to this near-death thing again. Uh, I know there are many reports where people who are blind have been able to see... Uh, during a near-death experience and been able to report back on what they've seen. Have there been any reports of people who are deaf and have heard things? Uh, it... Yes. Yeah, there's reports of people smelling colour, hearing sound. Uh, sorry, uh, hearing sound, yeah. There's loads of reports spe- of that. Speci- <laughs> specifically, but specifically, Ron, yes, there is. Um, there are several... There are several reports. In fact, I was only reading one uh, last week when I was doing some stuff actually for paracoustics um, and realised that that, I think we'd skipped over that particular, uh, you know, you can't put everything into the book. Oh, right. Uh, right. You know, although it's comprehensive. You know what I mean? Well, although the book's comprehensive, we have said that you know it is the foundation stones uh, for uh, for people who are interested in sound. We can't. I mean, we had to stop at five hundred pages um, because, <laughs> because people have got to be able to afford to buy it, and the printer's got the publisher's got to be able to afford to publish the damn thing. So, if, so if there has the to be time, a limit. If we had the yeah. time, I don't even think a volume two would do it justice. It would keep no. going on and on. So. That, that's why it was written so much, especially in the introduction with what Steve wrote, of making sure that the reader is perfectly aware that this is a foundation, it's a grounding, it's a guidebook. We've not put everything in, it's not possible. Besides, volume two is paravision. We're out of time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyways, Cal, you want to give out your website where people can reach you and so forth? Uh, you can go on Amazon. I've got an author profile on there. If you put in Callum E. Cooper, and also you can contact me and follow me via Twitter by searching for Callum E. Cooper as well on there. But, uh, and you can just follow me down the street. I don't care. <laughs> People often do. <laughs> yeah. So, Cal, it's, it's great to speak with you again, and uh, good luck with the book. Uh, it sounds really interesting. Uh, so uh, anything else yeah. coming up you want to mention? Oh, uh, off by heart. Um, the da, 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 I can't Alan's think of anything else. Night? Are you doing? Yeah, there might be that. The, the best way to find out what I'm up to is to follow me on Twitter. And if I've got any public events coming up, then they'll be mentioned on there. Okay. At the moment, I'm really racking my brains to think. It's in the no diary. Worries. We gotta go. So, anyways, uh, thanks a lot. And Steve, as always, uh, it's been a pleasure. Good night. God bless. Night, guys. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good law. In today's business world,